Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. This is the episode for September 2023. On this episode, I am going to read the second half of the poems from my 50 Days Till 50 Years series. I wrote a poem every day up until, or for the 50 days, up until my 50th birthday, uh, which as I'm recording this was yesterday, September 10th. And in a Patreon episode for the members who joined at patreon.com slash a brief chat, I did a reading of the first 25 poems in the series. And uh, now for everybody, I'm going to do a reading of the second 25 poems. So if you'd like to hear that reading of the first 25, you can check it out at patreon.com slash a brief chat. There's a bunch of other bonus episodes there, too, which you'll get when you become a member. I am going to be taking drinks occasionally throughout this, uh, just because it's going to be a lot of reading. Ah. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read the poems. I'll talk about some of them as I go through, and uh, I'm going to do these in chronological order starting on August 16th and poem 26, which is called Leftovers. A Flood took the journals and photos, an auction, the music and memories, a minivan too small for the books. I am what remains. So uh, I've lost pretty much everything I've ever owned in one way or another over the years. Um, I had a bunch of memorabilia from my First time, well, actually from both times in Japan, and uh, a house that my co-parent and I lived in, it flooded in the basement, and a lot of that stuff was destroyed. And then the first time I became homeless, I had stuff in storage, but eventually I couldn't pay the storage, and it all got auctioned off, and that was pretty much everything I owned, except for my poetry books, which I had put somewhere else. And then uh, when I moved into the van, I donated my thousands of books to the friends of the Tucson Library. So, yeah, I don't uh, I don't own much anymore, as it turns out. This is a very short poem, number 27. This is called Worth It, uh, dedicated to my son John. The scar on my left knee is from crashing a BMX bike I was only riding to be your dad. I think that one is pretty self-explanatory. This one is called The First Time. Junior High Auditorium. It's an old folks' home now. Jazz ensemble show. They got to the solo spot. Mr. Boyce, now deceased, stepped to the electric piano. A kid rose in the sax section, the school's soprano sax shining in the stage lights, to take a solo. The drummer kicked into action. Mr. Boyce pounded the keys. The kid closed his eyes and blew until a whole new future stretched out in front of him. That's a memory of, uh, well, exactly what it sounds like, junior high jazz ensemble show in uh, Canandaigua, New York. And I had recently discovered the school's soprano saxophone. And I had started out as a clarinet player and then became a tenor sax player. I was kind of forced to become one for the marching band. And I found a soprano saxophone on the shelf in the band room. And that was kind of this beautiful marriage between those those instruments, the saxophone and the clarinet. And I took a solo at a show and uh, really just changed my whole my whole perception of what I might use my life to do. 
So during this series, this 50 days till 50 years series, all of which, by the way, is available at jasoncrane.org, I was mostly writing poems about my past and the people from my past. And I tried to write about topics I, for the most part, had not written about before. Uh, that's not exclusively true, but for example, I've never written all that many poems about my days as a union organizer, though I have written a couple. Uh, but this is another one. It's called Officer Unfriendly. I would grab a bullhorn and taunt the cops. I'd make fun of them right to their faces from a few feet away to make the workers laugh. Picket lines are long and hard and too cold or too hot. Morale is kept up by humor as much as righteousness. I shouted insults at the cops whose faux unions are always on the side of the oppressor, who stand in their own picket lines firmly opposed to justice. I used my whiteness, my maleness as a shield, provoking and absorbing and deflecting their anger from the workers who didn't look like me, who couldn't afford any trouble, but who were marching anyway because they knew that enough was enough. I didn't teach my kids to ask cops for help. I told them to never talk to the police. Unless you've got a big bullhorn and a big crowd, then you can make an exception. This is a poem about, um, well, it's about abuse, actually. This is called Contingency. I had a plan for if it happened again. A late night, tiptoe to the kitchen, find the right drawer, then back upstairs plan. I came up with it as a kid, never expecting to need it as a middle-aged man. But there I was in the kitchen with his raged, trembling body. I went for the door, but she stepped between us, so I ran for the car and drove away. I was, and am, a nerd, and uh, when I was in high school, I was in Odyssey of the Mind. This is a poem about that. It's called, I Thought I Recognized Your Foul Stench. Chris was Leia, Wade and Jeff were stormtroopers, Kevin played Keys, I was Vader. There was Balsawood involved and Free Weights, a cardboard Death Star, and Depeche Mode's Just Can't Get Enough. If none of this makes any sense, what can I say? We were nerds. It was the 80s. It was either Odyssey of the Mind or Learn to Throw a Ball. In the Odyssey of the Mind that I took a part in, there were a bunch of different things you could do do an odyssey of the mind but the one that my uh, gang did was a thing where you had to build a balsa wood structure that supported a you know a truly surprising amount of weight that would be stacked on top of it in the form of free weights and then uh, that had to be factored into a skit of some kind so we had a couple kind of engineering type guys in high school and they would make the balsa wood structure and then uh, the rest of us would write a skit and perform it and this was a star wars base skit uh, that we performed one year. This is called Chasing Answers to Questions Unknown, uh, and a friend of mine, my friend Steph, provided the title. From the moment Father Edgar walked into the room, I knew I wanted to be a monk. When we changed teams moving across the street to the Methodists, I decided to become a minister instead. At 15, newly into prog rock and Depeche Mode, I discovered it was possible to not believe in God. I flew 10,000 miles to clap hands and bow, to ring bells and make mochi and stare up at statues. 
For Christmas in 1997, Jen bought me a book about the Lotus Sutra. It was over my head. Three years later, I was in our spare room, incense burning on the credenza, legs folded, hands in a mudra. Over the next two decades, I went back to the cushion time after time, trying to quiet the monkeys. Eventually, I threw in the towel, but somebody threw it back. After all, a fruit has to know where their towel is. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, too. That last line, a fruit has to know where their towel is, is a Hitchhiker's Guide reference. This is a poem about the first radio interview I ever conducted. It's called A Journey of 1,000 Miles. My first guest was a nun. I hadn't talked to one since the second grade. It was for a five-minute feature on people doing good work in Rochester, New York. I was in a studio. She was on the phone. As soon as it was over, I pressed a button and erased the whole thing. I broke out in a sweat, took a few deep breaths. Then I called her back and asked if she'd do it again. Sure, she said. I think I can do it better anyway. It's been a long time since then, but uh, actually just this year I did an entire... Uh, 40 minute interview that I did not record and had to tell the artist I hadn't recorded any of it and could we do it one more time it's another fairly self-explanatory one called but I am your child uh, I guess uh, one thing I will say is that the father in the first stanza is my biological father and the parents in the second stanza are my biological mother and my adoptive father but I am your child it's called my father never looked for me. In more than 30 years, he never wrote, never called, never showed up outside my school or at my job, never spotted me through a fence playing with my sons at the park. It's been four years, and my parents are clearly content to let this silence stretch into permanence, to hold on to the other child and pretend she was the first and only. When I posted that online, somebody asked me, you know, could you send them this as a way to begin communication? And just to be clear, that that's not my desire. While uh, I was working on this project, it was also August for a lot of it, which was the Sealy Challenge month. And this year I did the Sealy Challenge for the first time, which is a challenge to read a book of poetry every day. And during that time, I read Jack Kerouac's Book of Blues. And... Uh, this was inspired by that. It's called After Jack. You start with the legs crossed or kneeling or sitting in a chair with your hands just so or no particular way at all. The breath comes slow, deep, or else it doesn't. Who's to say? In the brain, an alto sax plays, and then Pedro strikes a guy out, and then there was that one time you told someone how you felt, and it didn't go well. And then something is scuttling through the leaves outside, and then you think of calling her, or think of writing to them, and then dinner tonight. Maybe try the Indian place? Oh, that's right, you're supposed to be breathing. I mean, you are breathing, otherwise there'd be a whole new set of problems, but you're not paying attention, and really attention is where it's at, where it's all it's at, as Lenny stumbled that one time after he'd taken up lecturing rather than bits. Breathing, right, you won't forget again, but you will probably, because today the zoo is full of little imps and they love jumping on the Samsonite of your memories, and then there was that time you took the dog back because it bit a kid in the neighborhood, busted right through the door and chased the kids around and got one, and then you think of the way they asked if you ever 
expected to be with someone like them, and how that question has never quite sat right, you know? And yet you did expect it, but now it's over, and it always comes back to that in the end, doesn't it? The overness of it all, and then you remember to breathe. That's kind of, you know, what goes on in my head when I meditate, uh, which is called monkey mind in Buddhism. So we're up to number 36. Um, This is called Mr. W. This is dedicated to Mr. Wakabayashi, who was the guy who kind of shepherded my fellow exchange students and I. Uh, when we were in northern Japan. Mr. W. We all piled out of the plane at Narita, taking our first steps into the mystery. A few spoke some Japanese, most like me, not a word. Then suddenly he was there, quick and powerful and suave, a smile permanently lurking just behind his eyes. He showed us how to use a payphone so we could tell our parents we'd lived. Last call for a month, he reminded us. Then it was buses, if memory serves. Tanin would remember. Anyway, it was a long trip north to a hotel in Sendai, where the next morning a series of curious families would try to identify us from the one photo they'd each been sent. Halting conversations, mispronounced names, then helping us into cars or onto trains with our suitcases and our wide-eyed stares. Mr. W. watched over it all, nodding at the right places, stepping in to translate, making sure each of us felt cared for. Later, he'd party with us and dance and sing songs and watch us eat soba till a couple of us puked. We were all thousands of miles from our fathers, but he made it feel like no distance at all. The bit about eating soba till throwing up, there's this uh, kind of food game called Wonko Soba, and you get you sit down and a, uh, a soba is uh, uh, buckwheat noodles. And I think it's buckwheat. Anyway, Tanine would also remember that friend of mine who was also an exchange student at the same time I was. Uh, Anyway, you get these, uh, a little bowl of these noodles, like, you know, one mouthful of the noodles. And the game is that you just keep eating them and you stack up the bowls and whoever stacks up the most bowls wins. But when these noodles hit your stomach, they expand. And so as you're quickly throwing these noodles back from the bowl, these bowls one at a time, you don't really feel it, but a, a little bit after, you're suddenly so much more full than you were. And so we uh, we played this game, and a couple of my fellow exchange students uh, returned that soba to uh, the earth. This is, I think, maybe the, the kind of least direct poem of the 50. Uh, this is called Ancestry. To go down into the mine again and again, searching for one more seam, one more rich vein. To walk the dark tunnels deeper and deeper until daylight fades behind like a rumor. To hear the trickling water drip and drip, making the way treacherous, slick, unforgiving. To chip away at the walls harder and harder until the dust defies breathing. To return to the surface, levels and levels, clutching a meager find, holding it up to the light. I don't exactly know where that came from, except that it is, I guess, more or less about doing family research and what you find there. 
One thing I tried not to do during the 50 days uh, was write poems about Owen. And because that's what I do the rest of the time, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, and for the most part, I, I didn't. But occasionally, I did. And uh, obviously, th- there was a reference to Owen in the Jack Kerouac poem. And uh, there's one in this, too. This is called Chance Encounter. I met him in the park where you asked me to marry you. I was in a camping van. I'm going to start that again because I made a mistake. (laughs) Chance encounter. I met him in the park where you asked me to marry you. I was in a camping chair behind my van reading. He was passing by on one of the park's walking paths. The rear door of my van, the van I moved into after you met someone else, was open, and the bed and stove caught his eye as he passed. He stopped to talk, asking about my travels, what I had seen and where I had slept and how I kept alive. Everyone's questions. We exchanged numbers for some reason, and I stopped going to that park, the park where you asked me to marry you before you met someone else. Uh, This is another Japan-related poem, uh, at least in context. When I lived in Japan the first time as an exchange student, I told everyone that I was coming home, I can't remember exactly, but let's say in August, and I actually came home in July, or July and June, or whatever. But I I knew all along I was coming home a month before I told them I was coming home. And so the only person I told was my friend James. And I asked if he would pick me up at the airport, and uh, if he would take me before he took me home, if he would take me to my girlfriend's house. I had had a girlfriend in high school, and uh, when I went away, you know, I, I tried to maintain that relationship the best I could. Uh, and this is what happened that night. It's called Long Distance. I came home from Japan a month early. A grand surprise. James picked me up at the airport. We drove through town, and he pointed out the new post office, the new Wegmans. He took me to your house before he took me home. Your mom answered the door, called you down from your room. As soon as I saw your face... I knew it was over. This is a poem called References. um, And essentially, it is just a poem full of references to a conversation I had with another Gen X friend. References. Another life. We're riding our Jetson-y bubble bikes, singing along to detachable penis and particle man, Quoting Python and gross point blank. Yes, I would like fries with that. I have a lot of friends who are, you know, very different ages from me in both directions, but sometimes it's nice to talk to people who exactly know the era (laughs) that you're referring to. I got my first tattoo 15 years ago. This is a poem about that. It's called Ink. He pedaled his bike from the rented house to the tattoo shop. He was 35 years old. He rode past the shop, went up a couple blocks, turned around, rode back but out of sight of the big window. Took a deep breath, went in. He showed the tattoo artist what he wanted, a bicycle chain wheel with a peace sign inside it, the peace cog. No problem, said the artist. Tommy, his name was. Tommy went into the back. The 35-year-old with his bare arms waited on a vinyl chair back to the big window and the traffic on the street outside. After a few minutes, Tommy returned, the design drawn on a tissue-thin paper. Come on back, Tommy said. Later at the union hall, a young co-worker spotted the ink on his forearm. 
dude, did you get a tattoo? He felt, was it cool? Was he cool? Yeah, he said. I used to run this uh, briefly popular cycling site kind of aimed at urban cyclists for the most part that was called rock bike roc bike because uh i did it when i lived in rochester new york the airport code for which is roc uh and anyway the uh adam durand uh who wrote for the site and did bike stuff with me he designed the peace cog which is a bicycle chain wheel with the peace sign in the middle and uh so i have that tattooed on my right forearm this is about a missed opportunity. It's called Such Great Heights. I should have gone with you. I know that now. I knew it then, too, but lacked the courage. My son is coming to visit. I think you'd like him. Yours is old enough to vote now. I know him only as an infant in a car seat at the airport departure gate. It's Friday afternoon. I'm playing Such Great Heights by the Postal Service on my radio show. Remember when you sent me that song? It was many years after we'd met. We got as far as planning to meet again until you changed your mind and retreated into silence. Everything looks perfect from far away. And if you'll forgive a comment that is aimed at just one listener, I'm just going to say refresh, refresh, refresh. I've been introduced to so much great music by so many people, and this is a poem in which I name the people and at one thing they introduced me to because uh, obviously it's impossible to, well, it's impossible to remember and also impossible to thank everyone for all of the incredible things. This is called Gratitude. Mike for Joni, David for The Roots, Jeff for Bruce, the other Jeff for Dire Straits. Roberto for Cachao, Jen for Los Lobos, Josh for Jewels and Binoculars, Dave for Toad the Wed Sprocket, Adi for Lilia Vera, a different Jen for Elvis Costello, Grandpa for Glenn Gray, Grandma for Nat Cole, Corey for Billy Bragg, Kazuhiro for TMN, Stephen for Leonard Cohen, Paul for Hugh Masekela, Christian for Billy Idol, Todd for Kiss, Ed for Johnny Cash, Tina for Hank Williams, Peter for You So Endure, Kevin for most of the rest. I wrote this poem on my mother's birthday, which is a week before mine. It's called Happy Birthday. It wasn't all bad. There were lots of nice moments. Eventually, though, the negative outweighed the positive. Love shouldn't be conditional, at least not a mother's love. I was not always blameless, but I was always your son. I went to therapy, I took my meds, I meditated, I tried. You grew too in some ways, but not in any that required introspection. You were swept up in a cycle started generations before. I'm typing this alone in my apartment, left by the person about whom we had our final fight. But my son is on his way to visit me, so maybe the cycle is broken. 
On to number 45. Um, I grew up, well, I grew up in a lot of places, but the the longest of those places was uh, in Canandaigua, although we actually lived across the, on a road that was the dividing line. We lived in Bristol, New York, technically. And we lived in a log house that was um, on a dirt road while I lived there. And uh, this is a poem about one of the things there. It's called When We Come to It. The road had been there since at least the 1830s, if the cornerstone on the Red Farmhouse was right. At some point, it had been diverted up the hill, rendering the little concrete bridge obsolete. The boy had moved there in the 80s into a log home on what had been a vacant bit of hillside. He found the bridge one day while exploring past the pond. When he found the bridge, he found the creek. It led back into acres of forest all the way to the 4-H camp. He followed the twisting water into the trees, the sun's rays reaching but only just. A few years later, he brought a city kid out there. The kid jumped out onto a tree limb hanging over the water. The limb sprang up and tossed the kid several feet. He was surprised but not hurt, so neither of them mentioned it when they got back. The boy had many adventures among the trees, daring escapes and forest battles and wilderness hikes. Even when somebody bought the plot of land next door, he still snuck into the forest and followed the water. Sometimes in the summer, he could hear the PA system from the 4-H camp, calling the campers to lunch or dinner. Eventually, he grew up and stopped visiting the bridge and the creek and the forest. Then the house was sold. The new owners changed the color. Can I tell you a story? This has nothing to do, well, it has a tiny, tiny bit to do with that poem, with a thing mentioned in that poem. Maybe one or two of you know this story, but uh, at one time when I was living in Rochester, I was working as a union organizer. This is when my grandparents were still alive, and I was I was driving uh, with them in the back seat of my car. And I can't remember where we were going, but anyway, uh, I saw a little girl riding a bike. There, there was a... a what I assumed was a mom and a little girl, both riding bikes, riding two separate bikes. And I saw this little girl get hit by a car. And uh, it was at a four-way intersection. And there was, I think, a store, on a convenience store on one corner of the intersection. And some guys uh, who saw it also got in their truck and took off to chase the car that had hit her. And I stopped and I had a cell phone. So I got out. And uh, I walked up to the mom who's, you know, standing over her her bleeding daughter, who is who in the end of this is fine, by the way. Um, and I, I said, I, you know, I've already called an ambulance. Is there anything else I can do? And she said, yes, uh, here's my house key. My house is number whatever it was. It's right down this street. Would you go get my son who's at home right now and bring him here? So I went and there was a boy there and uh, I, I told him who I was and he came with me and I took him back to the intersection and an ambulance was arriving and the little girl got in the ambulance and uh, they drove away. So I mentioned um, when I read the poem about my tattoo that I ran this cycling site called Rock Bike. This was years later. And uh, I took part in like these you know, t- community bike rides, critical mass rides and things like that, where, you know, the idea is to get people out on their bikes and to kind of sh- demonstrate that they have a right to to ride on the streets and all those things. And through those, I, I met various people who were into biking and I um, 
I would ask them from time to time, you know, would you write a piece for the site? And uh, I met this one woman. Her name was Julie. And uh, I think we might have known each other maybe from some like social justice circles or something. But anyway, uh, I asked her if she would write a piece for the site because I, I knew she biked a lot. And she wrote a piece about the day her daughter got hit by a car and what happened. And it turned out that Julie was the mom whose daughter had gotten hit that day. We hadn't realized it until she wrote that story. And I said, oh, I'm the guy in this story. And so that was mind-blowing. Well, her daughter went on to become uh, a well-known classical trumpet player and a professor of trumpet. And in the summertime, she teaches at a camp, which is the 4-H camp referred to in that poem that was right behind the house where I grew up. So, yeah, everything comes around eventually. So I said I tried to avoid writing poems about Owen, but as I also said, I didn't always succeed. This is called Playlist. Um, the uh, Jackie and Wilson, the song referred to in the first line, is a song by Hosier. Uh, that was a particular favorite of Owen. Playlist. Jackie and Wilson is on my son's playlist. Suddenly I'm in our car on the way to Livingston, singing along with you, hands clasped on your lap or mine. I almost asked him to skip it, but I didn't feel like saying why, so I kept quiet and thought of you until my breath returned to normal. Uh, when I met Jen, my co-parent, we were living in Tucson, and uh, Jen at the time was working for the Urban League. She was helping to rehab houses for low-income families, and I was uh, playing in a Latin dance band. And this is a song. The title is Back on the Chain Gang slash Fotos y Recuerdos, because uh, Selena... Uh, the late great singer, uh, she did Back on the Chain Gang as a Pretenders song, but she did a version of the song with different lyrics and in Spanish. I mean, not just different because they're in Spanish, but a different story told by the lyrics to the same music. Um, and she called hers Photos and Memories in Spanish. So anyway, here we go. I know this song because of Selena, which is odd because I seem more like a Pretenders guy at first glance. You were rehabbing houses in Tucson. I was playing nights in a Latin dance band. We were listening to a lot of music in Spanish. When she died, it was like a day of mourning settled on the city. The guys you worked with sang along to her songs on the radio and cried. We moved to Japan and watched Jennifer Lopez, a new name to both of us, play Selena in the movie. We rode the trains to work, probably the only people on the Yamanote line, swaying gently to Como la Flor. All these years later, I still think of late-night burrito runs to Los Betos when I hear her music, or else watching Domino sleeping in a patch of sun on the floor of our apartment in Yokohama. Photos and memories. Domino was our cat. Who uh, we got in Tucson, and then she moved with us to Japan, and then she moved with us to South Carolina, and then she moved with us to New Hampshire, and then to Rochester, New York, and then to Albany, where she passed away. This is an extremely self-explanatory poem called All My Poems Are Sad. All my poems are sad, even the happy ones. I should have written a few happy, happy poems, but I didn't. 
Just all these sad little guys slumped on couches, staring into the middle distance. Whatever that means. Sometimes I try to give one of my poems a piece of yellow cake with chocolate frosting, which, coincidentally, is also my favorite. I give it to the poem, and he takes a bite and makes a brave show of smiling, but I know. I know. I misread the also my favorite line a little bit, but it's the right words, but I should have emphasized it differently. But just let it go. I'm doing this like a poetry reading, not like a uh, recording. I moved to Tucson in uh, 1994, and halfway across the country, the uh, Ford Festiva that I was driving, the tape deck broke. And so then the rest of the time I lived in Tucson, I just had to listen to the radio when I was driving around, which I had never really been a radio person, particularly uh, in terms of listening, and except for like NPR and stuff like that. But I had never really gotten my music from the radio. I got it from, you know, my own collection. This is called Airwaves. When the Ford Festiva's tape deck broke, it was all radio all the time. The Afghan wigs and Goo Goo Dolls and Blues Traveler and Tracy Chapman and Alanis Morissette and Jewel and Dishwalla and Deep Blue Something and Coolio and Hootie and the Blowfish and Oasis and No Doubt and the Bodines and Natalie Merchant and Melissa Etheridge driving the meanish streets of Tucson with a styrofoam container of burritos on the passenger seat, coming home from a gig at 2 a.m. to an empty apartment and later to a less empty one. It's a fairly staggering coincidence that I met my first life partner in Tucson and I lost my second one there. Every once in a while I think of that and it's it's wild. Uh, this is, as will be immediately obvious, the final one in the series. This is called On the Last Night of My Forties. On the last night of my forties, I had dinner with my former wife and my current sister. French dips and tie wings in a 19th century Pennsylvania tavern. I talked with a friend about chess, traded jokes with my son, and listened to the crickets sing through a gentle rain. Tomorrow is the big day, a half century. I'm not where I thought I'd be, but I'm still here, and that counts. If you don't mind, I'm just going to read you one more before I say goodbye. This is the one um, I wrote last night. On my birthday. It's called I Wanted You to Know. And this is, of course, for Owen. I know that it's probably, this is not the poem, this is me still talking. I, <laughs> I think many of you listening probably think, well, I don't know, I don't want to ascribe things to you. I sometimes worry people think it's, it's sad or pathetic or odd that three years later I feel like I lost Owen yesterday, and like I would trade everything just to have them back, even though I also want my life to move on, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I Sometimes I kind of beat myself up for that. I think it just takes as long as it takes. And I also sometimes think people are probably thinking, uh, well, maybe if you stopped writing poems all the time about it. But I don't know. I guess that's part of how I process. And... um yeah, I <laughs> Yeah, I just I am I am still in the same headspace. So, yeah, if you were interested in dating me, it's not that I'm opposed to it. I I'm I'm definitely interested. Uh but, you know, this is the guy you're going to get.
uh, luckily, I think for almost everyone who hears the sound of my voice right now, you're uh, you're probably out of the danger zone. Uh, this is called I Wanted You to Know. I wanted you to know I turned 50 today. When I used to picture this day, I imagined you with me. We'd hug the guests goodbye, close the door behind them, put on some music while we washed the dishes, then curl up on the couch to watch Vine compilations until it was time for bed. Maybe next year. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for uh, just being part of my life. Um, many of you uh, sent me lovely notes for my birthday, and a few of you were there. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much. And I uh, will talk to you next month when this will return to uh, something more like what it usually is, I guess. Whatever whatever that is. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Oh, oh, and uh, by the way, if you become a member at abriefchat.com, uh, you'll get a second episode this month, a bonus episode, which was originally going to be this. So I have no idea what that's going to be now, but we'll figure something out. Uh, but you'll get a bonus episode every month. You get a weekly email with links and stories and photos and stuff. Um, you can get, if you just want to get the email and early access to the podcast, uh, that's a dollar a month. If you also want to get the bonus episode, that's $5 a month. And uh, both of those are available at patreon.com slash a brief chat. Okay, that's really it now. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>